I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're continuing our study through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're looking at verses 6 through 8 this morning, and the title is, Why is Purity So Important in the Church? Why is Purity So Important in the Church? And before we read or get into the study, I thought I would open up with a question related to last week, because uh, we did ask this question last week, and I thought I'd answered it, though I got some emails this week, so I just want to clarify it. But uh, should everyone be welcome in the church? Should everyone be welcome in the church? I see yes. Okay, let me, let me push back a little bit on that. Um, uh, when we talk about that question, it can be taken two different ways. One is you don't want a, a church to have an exclusive attitude where uh, people feel like um, they'll never fit in. On the other hand, um, when someone comes to the church, the message should be so distinct and so clear and so different from any other message that they hear outside of the church, that is, message from the world, that um, they should understand that a change of heart internally produces a change of behavior externally. And therefore, if someone comes to church and is unrepentant about their sin, flagrantly flaunting their sin, someone needs to confront them about their sin in love, in humility, out of care for them. And if they refuse to uh, turn from their sin, the church is really not a place for them. And it's actually a problem if the church continues to welcome them and associate themselves with them because that person affects other people in the church and sin tends to spread. And so for the purity of the church, it's important that we recognize the church is a place for repentant sinners. Now, unbelievers are welcome to come to the church, but they must recognize this is not primarily for them. This is a place where the people of God worship a holy God. And so uh, we want to preach the gospel at the church in hopes that anyone who is not a believer will understand the good news of Jesus Christ and salvation and repent and turn from their sin but if someone comes to church and is unrepentant and persists in flagrant sin, uh, then they should be encouraged not to be at church. So is there any, I mean, I'm open to discussion on this. Is there any, uh, Paulo, I'm sure you have something to say about this. Um, no, is anybody have, I don't want to call anybody out, Paulo. Uh, no, um, <laughs> no. It, is there, is, there, is there any question about that? I don't, I don't want you to, to walk away misunderstanding me, and I don't want you to feel like um, I didn't deal with the specific question you had. Yes? Yeah. Well, so the, the answer is, is that like saying that an overweight person is not allowed in the gym? Um, so I guess the question is if the overweight person comes to the gym, doesn't pay the dues for the gym and is forcing donuts on people who are trying to be in shape, would the gym, uh, would the gym owner have a right to say to him, you know, you, this is probably isn't the best place for you right now. Why there's a donut shop right down the road and a bunch of those people are exactly on the same page as you are. But these people are trying to avoid what you're trying to, to spread. And let me, let me put it this way. I mean, just practically speaking, suppose someone breaks into your house and holds you up at gunpoint and robs you and, and then sits next to you in church. Is this a, ju- a justice-free zone where we do not confront people who are and says, oh, I'm a believer, you know, uh, I'm happy to worship here. Um, and you say, you know, you robbed me this week. And he says, yeah, um, 
but uh, I'm at church, and church is for everyone, even, you know, robbers. And so uh, I think, you know, catch me if you can, but right now you, this is a sanctuary for me. Is that really what the church is for? Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm, I'm open for other scenarios. Yes, Paulo. Sure. What Ephesians 4, 11 and following teach is that every member is a minister of the church, that God gave apostles and prophets to lay the foundation of the church. He gives pastors, teachers, evangelists, evangelists in, in, in the first century were more like church planters, and he gave them to the church to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. The work of ministry is to encourage, to sharpen, to serve one another. And so when we think about... Um, our job, the idea is that we will continue to grow as a body in maturity. Um, when it comes to uh, the passage that we're in this morning in 1 Corinthians 5, we have somebody who has, is, is in an immoral relationship that was considered to be incestuous by the culture. He was living with his father's wife, probably his stepmother, could have been his ex-stepmother, um, some commentators think it could have been his mother, but regardless, it's, appear, it's apparent that um, the, uh, the relationship was so um, frowned upon by Roman culture and by, by the world and should have been by the church that the church was priding themselves on actually accepting this adulterous affair that was going on in the church. And so, um, you know, when we think about that scenario, Paul says this person should be outside of the church. There's no question about it. And that was our passage last week where uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 3, for I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who is, has so committed this as though I were not present in the name of our Lord Jesus when you are assembled and I with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus, I've decided to deliver someone out someone to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. If this guy is a genuine believer and he persists in unrepentant sin and does not repent of it, the church should not be accepting of it. The church should actually remove him for his benefit, for the sake that he should feel the pain of being outside of God's people. He should not feel like his sin is accepted by God's people. So that's why I say the church is a place for repentant sinners. If unrepentant believe, uh, unbelievers want to come and hear the gospel, we would want them to. But we don't necessarily want them to feel comfortable hearing it. It should challenge their heart. We don't want them to walk away saying, oh, yeah, this, this is great. Uh, let me give you another example. And this is just, I mean, uh, there are some professions where there needs to be a change of profession if you are genuinely coming to faith in Christ. We don't have Christian prostitutes. You may have a prostitute who repents of her sins and turns to faith in Christ and genuinely gets saved. But you can't expect for her to worship God properly amongst God's people and still maintain her profession. 
She needs to abandon that profession or she needs to, she, the, the, she needs to abandon her work or abandon her profession of faith. Yeah, Stephen. I think you made the point where it's like, I think a lot of people are afraid of judgmentalism. Yep. When it comes to church, that's what they're afraid of. Uh, you know, uh, whereas it's okay to confront people, and the only people you're going to confront are, are Christians. They're the only people you're going to want to be there who are members of the church. But I think judgmentalism is the fear people have. Yeah, we did make that distinction um, in weeks past where we distinguished between judgmentalism and judging. Judgmentalism, as described, as condemned in Matthew chapter 7, where it says, do not judge, it's talking about judging as judgmental, with judgmentalism. Judgmentalism is judging someone else by a standard by which you do not judge yourself. And that's why in, in Matthew chapter 7, it says, do not judge, uh, you know, first take the log out of your own eye, then remove the speck from your brother's eye. The removing the speck is what we're supposed to do. That's judging righteously. That's helping your brother remove a speck from his eye. But if you've got a log in your eye, you're obviously not looking at yourself the same way you look at other people, and that's judgmentalism, which is condemned. And that's also a grievous sin before the Lord. So I think that um, it, it, it's a tricky thing. I know that churches put signs out in front of their church saying, all are welcome. I think they have the best intention, and I think what they mean is, don't think that you're too much of a sinner to come in here and hear the gospel. But what they don't mean or what they shouldn't mean is that it doesn't matter what your life looks like, you can be one of us and have sweet fellowship with us. That's what, I'm, that's what this passage is speaking out against. That's why I say not everyone is truly welcome in the church because unless, if you want... If you want to really be a part of the body of Christ, you need to reflect Christ. Is that clear? Is that good? All right. If you have more questions, you can raise them later. You can come talk to me afterwards. You can send me an email. I, I really do want us to work through this together. I don't want to leave anybody behind, and I don't want to come across as though I'm insensitive to a situation or scenario that maybe doesn't sound like something I'm talking about. But as we look at 1 Corinthians 5, it's one of those passages that is really one of my favorite passages of the scripture when it comes to helping me to understand and deal with sin. Because it not only reminds me that purity is important, but it explains why purity is so important. It motivates me to be pure in my life. Um, in chapter 5, the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is, is about purity in the church. And verses 6 through 8 are helpful because they give us a better understanding as to why it's important to be so pure. Um, Most of us understand that the Bible teaches it's wrong to continue in sexual immorality. Most of us understand that it's wrong to steal, to lie. Uh, Even in the welcome time this morning, uh, they mentioned that we weren't going to do two truths and a lie, but it was going to be just two truths uh, there was faulty reasoning there because it's the Lord's Day. Now, it doesn't matter what day it is, right? Right? If you're a follower of Christ, it's still wrong to lie, um, to slander, to be greedy, to get drunk, to take drugs. We know that the Bible teaches against that. It, most people outside of the church know that the Bible speaks against sin and calls immoral behavior sin. It's not difficult to understand what the Bible teaches regarding immorality, but what it's often difficult to do is to do what the Bible teaches regarding immorality, to really flee immorality. It's difficult to abstain from sexual immorality. It's difficult for Christians to resist the temptations that daily batter against their conscience. If it were easy to resist temptation because you're a follower of God, then we wouldn't have so many followers in the scripture of God crying out to God. Like King David in Psalm 51, who wrote, created me a pure heart, O God. Or the prophet Isaiah would never have said, I'm a man of unclean lips, when he was faced with the reality of a holy God. Or Peter would have never begun to curse himself and swear, saying, I do not know the man, when he clearly did know who Jesus was. Matthew 26, right before the rooster crowed. Paul would have never written 
For what I will do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do in Romans 7, where he talked about the tension between holy living and our old sinful past. If it were easy to resist temptation, then we would have no interest in this message today whatsoever. But as it is, we are desperate to hear from God's word and his wisdom, not only on why it is important to be pure, but how we can have victory over sin and maintain purity, not only amongst the body of Christ, but as individuals. As Robert Murray McShane once said, when a sinner comes first to Christ, he often thinks he will now bid an eternal farewell to sin. Now I shall never see sin anymore. He feels already at the gate of heaven. But a little breath of temptation soon discovers his heart. And he cries out, I see another law. And that's how it is for us. We we see the Lord working in our hearts. And then we see another area where our heart is being pulled And so when we come to this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it's one that will help us to overcome sin, and it's important for us to understand and know from the beginning that the Scripture teaches that there is no habitual sin that should dominate the life of a believer. Let me put it another way. If you are a genuine believer of Christ and you have repented of your sins and turned and followed him, Though it's true you will struggle against sin until you die and are fully perfected, sin shall not have dominion over you, Romans 6 teaches. So therefore, there is no one life-dominating sin that should characterize your life, and you can be free from that sin. It is not impossible for you to ever be free from a life-dominating sin. It is fully possible, and there are countless Christians who are free from it. It doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean that it's, going to be a long, it's not going to be a long struggle. But what it means is that it's possible and that God will continue, as Philippians 1, 6, you can be confident in this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will continue to perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. He will continue to work on you to make you more and more like Christ. And so it's important for you because if you wake up every morning thinking you're defeated, that you will never be able to conquer this sin, you don't understand what the Scripture teaches about how to overcome sin, and that's really what we're looking at in 1 Corinthians 5. So it also encourages us in 1 Corinthians 5 to lovingly confront our brothers and sisters in Christ when we see unrepentant sin in your life. One of the odd things about 1 Corinthians 5 is Paul seems to be more concerned about the church and its tolerance of sin in its midst than he is with the actual guy who is persisting in his sin. He really confronts the church here more than the guy because the guy has already been confronted and now needs to be out of the church. And in our passage, we're just looking at three verses, really. We may, we may get a little bit further. We may not get through verse 8, but we're looking at chapter 5, verses 6 and 8, 6 through 8, where we find three reasons why we need to deal severely with impurity. Three reasons why we need to deal severely with impurity, either as an individual, but specifically speaking to the church or even our fellowship group as a whole. The first reason why the church needs to rid itself of impurity is because Impurity and contamination are inevitable. Impurity and spreading or contamination are inevitable. Take a look at verse 6 of 1 Corinthians. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now, as we've seen through the book of 1 Corinthians, we've seen that This church had a lot of problems, and we will continue to see their problems come out again and again and again. And we could be thankful that they had problems, um, not because it was bad for them, but because we have problems. And it's good for us to see how God dealt with their problems because it teaches us how he wants to deal with our issues. And so uh, one of their key issues we know from our study has been pride, this arrogance that he continues to confront. 
They saw themselves as a thriving church. They saw themselves as a church that didn't need anything else in their spiritual life. Paul, back in chapter 4, verse 8, he actually sarcastically um, reminds them that they thought they were perfect. He speaks sarcastically to them in chapter 4, verse 8 of 1 Corinthians. Already you have want. Uh, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. And so Paul points out in chapter 5 that in spite of their pride, which was well known, there was sexual immorality in the church. Indeed, one of their members, and, and uh, someone else asked this question, we don't know why this woman is not confronted, why the man is being kicked out of the church. Most commentators would propose that the woman was not a member of the church, that she was not even a believer, and otherwise she would also have been confronted. It's not that we don't confront women. It's, it's that, we, uh, is that we only confront people in the church. Yes, question. Sure. Well, one thing to think, keep in mind is that Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, which is a Greek culture, which is not the Jewish culture. And so um, the, I, I don't think that he's, he's um, you know, the, I think he's writing to the church. He's concerned primarily about the purity of the church. And we don't know for sure. But if that woman who had formerly been married to this guy's, or could be still married to his father, um, that this relationship, which was horrific, um, should not continue on, and that the individual who had been confronted before should be actually removed from the church. Um, So I have all confidence that if the woman were in the church as well, that she would also need to be removed from the church, the man and, and not the woman, if she were in the church. But if she's already in Satan's domain... It, just, it actually just adds to the sin because not only is he in an immoral relationship uh, of fornication, but he's also in a relationship with an unbeliever, which is also not what Scripture teaches about purity and, for, and relationships that believers should be in. But the church was very proud about this. They prized comfort over confrontation. They prized how welcoming they were, even to those who were unrepentant about their sin. Of course, this, this is not uncommon today to see churches that have this. We talked about this, some of this this last week. I um, was reading about it, the Episcopalian Church, which is a, um, a, very, a, a church that celebrates gay pride. It was back in 2003 that they first appointed an openly homosexual bishop and there was uh, quite a bit of outrage about that within that church. And it was Desmond Tutu, the Anglican Archbishop from South Africa, who said this, quote, I don't see what all the fuss is about. For us, that, and he's speaking about sexual orientation of a church leader, doesn't make a difference. So it doesn't matter whether you're homosexual. It doesn't matter whether you are uh, uh, in, a, in an immoral relationship. Um, and where that leads is, uh, you know, you just have to look at where the world is going. Uh, the sexual revolution has opened up Pandora's box to any kind of sexual deviant, deviance as not only being acceptable but becoming mainstream and actually becoming uh, something that those who are intolerant of it are now they're not accepted and where this is going is, is pedophilia. Pedophilia is going to be accepted. You already see some nations, Germany has dropped the age of consent down to age 14 because they expect that children at age 14 will be sexually active. Um, India has a consent age for sexual activity at age 12. Uh, Philippines. Philippines. I, I, I had read India once time, not what they're, where they're at right now, but recently I read about Philippines. 12 years old, age of consent. It seems as though what is important in many churches today is not so much that the church is pure, but rather that no one feels offended. No one feels 
a message of condemnation for their behavior. I once received a brochure in the mail uh, to attend a pastor's conference, and the front of the brochure said, how to make your church user-friendly. And inside it said, make your church a place you feel comfortable bringing your friends. Again, I think that can be taken two two ways. I I don't want to purposely make people feel uncomfortable. We don't put thumbtacks on everybody's seats for visitors or things like that. Although that was something we used to do in my junior high group when I was a kid. We had... uh, we had one chair that had two wires underneath it, and uh, the, the youth leader would say, uh, anybody new here today, just stand up, and he'd push the button, and the person would stand up, and it was uh, kind of our little way of welcoming people. Um, but um, I'm not sure that some of my friends should feel comfortable in church. I'm not sure I should feel comfortable in church. There are issues in my life that need to be addressed. And I want them to be addressed, and I want the Word of God to address them. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, your boasting or your glorying is not good. They were glorying in the fact that they were so accepting of sin. Um, And Paul was more concerned that the the church was, was not responding to sin than the fact that this member was sinning, at least in this letter, he seems to put more attention to that because his concern is is that impurity and contamination are inevitable. Sin never remains isolated. It always spreads wherever it's at. That's true individually and corporately. Um, You know, it's amazing. Uh, Sometimes I will talk to people and they will talk about all that God is doing in their life. And I have victory over this and victory over this and victory over this. There's just this one area of my life that I haven't been dealing with and sin is running rampant in it, but everything else is going great. It doesn't commute to me. It doesn't compute to me. I, I, don't, I don't understand that. Everything can't be going great if one thing is a train wreck because every, sin affects everything you do. If I had a bucket with 12 holes in it and I said I patched 11 of the holes, it is fantastic. This bucket holds water like nothing before. And I bring it over and it's empty. I said, oh, there is that one hole. You would say, yeah, you need to patch all the holes. And that's how it is with sin. You can't deal with sin one at a time and ignore all the other sin in your life. We are working a fight fight against all the sin that we know about in our life. It's a full-on frontal attack on every front. And in verse 6 again, he says, do you not know, he's surprised here that they don't understand this principle, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? You see, in in ancient civilizations like in Greece and in Israel, before yeast was available for breaking bread, the person would often take a small portion of the dough, roll it up into a ball, and put that ball into water and let it ferment. And so if you wanted to make bread, you know, yeast is more of a purifying agent. They didn't use yeast. They used fermented dough, leaven, and it sat for a week. It got all stinky and yucky, and then they would take a little piece out of that yucky ball of of dough, and they would mix that in with a fresh batch of dough. And that little amount, they would let it sit for hours, and it would work its way throughout the whole dough because they've kneaded the whole dough, and the whole dough would rise from that fermentation, and then they would bake it, and you'd have nice, fluffy Sourdough bread, that's, that's the basic principle behind sourdough bread is a little bit of rotten bread. And so every, every really it is, and I'm sure that it's probably cleaner than what I've just described to you now, but the, but the typical kitchen in antiquity would have a rotten matzo ball in the cupboard. It would have this big yucky ball of dough and say, um, hey, I'm going to go grab some out of that, mix it in with a new dough. And before I, before I do that, I'm going to take some of this new dough, stick it in the cupboard, let it ferment for next week's loaf. And so I'm constantly taking a little bit out and putting a little bit in, you know, and, and getting rid of it. And the idea is that it infiltrates, it works through the whole loaf, the whole batch of dough. 
However, in Exodus 12, the Jews were commanded to get rid of all the unleavened bread that was in their house once a year at that Passover feast, also known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And one of the reasons why this passage does get confusing is because he, he, he switches right over to the, the Passover, to the Passover feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was a Jewish feast. And these were Gentile, by and large, Christians. Though Paul had been with him for, them for a year and a half, the Old Testament is still something that is taught in the churches today, and it's evident that they were familiar with what this feast was about, this Jewish festival of unleavened bread, the Passover, what it was about. But in Exodus 12, 15, it says, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove the leaven from your houses. For whoever eats the leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. So the Passover was this celebration of what? What was the Passover a celebration of? Deliverance from Egypt. That's right. Yeah. So, and, and the passing over was that the angel of death passed over the homes of the Israelites and actually uh, uh, they, the, but the firstborn children of all the Egyptians died. And so you have this great celebration. They got up and left and, and fled and, and were led out by Moses out of bondage to slavery. And part of that is they didn't have time. There was a sense of urgency. So they weren't even to wait for the bread to rise. So they took bread without leaven in it. They didn't have time for that yucky matzo ball to work its way through the whole loaf. So they just took the loaf without the fermentation in it, which meant for the next week, they were just eating flat bread, bread that had never raised crackers, okay, saltines without the salt. And uh, that's what they were traveling around with. The festival was a seven-day feast, and for those seven days, you didn't eat leavened bread. And so that's what it was, and it was, a, it was to remind them of deliverance. It was to remind them. It had a sense of urgency. But also, you know, in the New Testament, that metaphor of leaven working its way through is used uh, to speak about influence. And sometimes positively, there's an example in Matthew 13 where it speaks about the good influence of the kingdom of heaven, but often negatively, and in this case, that's certainly the case. Uh, Mark 8:15 would be another place of negative. Take heed, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. He's warning about false teachers and hypocritical behavior influencing others. And he reminds the Corinthians of something similar, but the hypocritical behavior was coming from within the church. So that's why he says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? In other words, a little bit of evil behavior that's accepted in the church is going to affect the whole church. So impurity and contamination is inevitable. Well, the second reason why impurity can, must be dealt with severely is because impurity and Christianity are incompatible. Impurity and Christianity are incompatible. Verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. In the original text here, there's an emphasis on cleansing. Uh, when we want to emphasize a word in English, we add an adverb to it oftentimes. If we say, well, that was interesting, but if we want to emphasize it, it was very interesting. If it was a really boring sermon, if it was a boring sermon and we want to emphasize it, we say that was a very boring sermon or a really boring sermon or something's amazing, and we want to emphasize the word amazing. That was truly amazing. That's how we typically emphasize. In Greek, emphasis added sometimes with a change of word order. The, the word you wanted to emphasize would be put to the beginning of the sentence. Um, sometimes the ending would be changed of the word to make it stronger, like making it a command or an imperative. Uh, sometimes you would take two words and combine them together and use a compound word to make more emphasis on it rather than just the general word for it. And this word in verse 7, the one clean out, is at the beginning of the sentence, it's a command, it's an imperative, the ending has been changed on it, and it is a compound word. So there's, there's this idea, he's saying thoroughly clean out. There's an emphasis here, don't just kind of do this, clean it out thoroughly. Clean out the old leaven in the church. 
And so we have this idea that they should get rid of anything from their old lifestyle. When you come to faith in Christ, your old lifestyle should be abandoned. There should be a difference. Just like the pagans, people, the pagan Egyptians had their practices, the Israelites were to leave so quickly not to take anything from that old pagan lifestyle. And so they became a new lump in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. I think that's a... um, you know, interesting phrase. I mean, you're looking for a new fellowship group name. We're the new lump. Um, you know, it uh, sounds concerning. But it's, uh, uh, Paul here says this is a good thing. But there's a theological, theological problem with calling them a new lump. There's a theological issue with saying, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. What's the problem? Do you have a question or? Yeah. Where do you draw the line on addressing sin? Anybody, you guys all sin, right? Where do you draw the line? Here's where I draw the line. If it's sin, I deal with it. If it's not sin, I don't need to deal with it. All sin needs to be dealt with. There are some sins that need to be dealt with more urgently than others, but all sin, it's a, it's a, battle, it's a battle on all fronts. And we don't, we, we, like you said, we're not aware of all of our sin. That doesn't mean that we don't address it. That doesn't mean that we, we, we cry out like David did, Lord, show me in my heart, is there any way of wickedness in me? We're coming in this passage to the words against sincerity and truth in verse 8, and we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about exposing ourselves to sincerity and truth and allowing that to point out sin in our life. Okay, that's, the, that's a good question. So the question is, so you're not talking about your own life. You're talking about when do you confront another? Yeah. So here's my answer for that. Uh, Jay Adams' answer for that is you confront them when you don't feel like doing it. If you do feel like doing it, don't do it. But I don't think that's the best answer because we can deceive ourselves a lot. But my answer for that is you confront them when it's what's best for them. You take yourself out of the equation. Philippians 2, 3, and 4, uh, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but consider others better than yourself. So what's best for this person? Is it best for me to confront them? especially if this sin is affecting other people. If they sin against you and you can overlook it and you think, you know what, I think it's best for them for me to cover it over with love, I'm not going to bring this up. But if you realize, hey, they're going to do this again to someone else if somebody doesn't lovingly point it out to them, you can come to them and say, listen, this is not about me. I'm fine to forgive you. I just want to point this out because when you step on people's toes, it hurts. You know? So... So we, we, we confront others in love. It can be a little thing, it can be a big thing, but generally, whenever it's possible to overlook it, we do that. We don't want to be the most painful people on earth, constantly just confront. That's all we're doing is confronting. Yeah. So, um, but um, the theological issue here that's a problem for Paul, if you're just reading the beginning of the verse, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, is that they already are a new lump. Their sufficiency is in Christ. They are a new creation in Christ. And so it's wrong for Paul to say to the church, be cleansed so that you become new, because theologically they already are new. Which is why he says the very next thing, just as you are in fact unleavened. Or as you really are unleavened. You see, he's talking about the practice and the position. Positionally before God, you are already pure. Now live that way. Purge out the old leaven that you may be able to be what you already are. 
Purge it out so you can be in practice what you already are in, in position. So why is the church unleavened? Take a look again at verse 7. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. The heart of Paul's message, as far as the Corinthians was concerned, is that this is the ultimate solution to their problem. It goes far beyond why we should be pure. It tells us how we can be pure. It's the motive for you to be pure, and that is to preach Christ to yourself every day. For Christ died to deliver his church from the slavery of sin. Um, You know, think about this and the Passover again, because the Passover, he mentions Christ, our Passover. He's clearly referring to the Jewish feast of unleavened bread here, but he also speaks about the lamb. What happened to the lamb? What happened to the lamb in the Passover? The Passover was they were to bring a lamb into their house every year when they celebrated the Passover. You brought a baby lamb, one years old, unblemished. You ever see a baby lamb? Cute, right? How, when did you bring it in your home? Three days before you slaughtered it. Three days this lamb is in your home, alive. You got kids? They'll name a goldfish, right? They'll name a bug. They'll name a frog. You got a little lamb? Oh, man, lammy. And then so... So they've got little Lammy, and uh, Lammy's there, and you say, okay, kids, we're going to celebrate the feast today. Yay! And then, all right, let's bring Lammy over. You hold her down while I take the knife. All right? Yeah, see, the babies are already crying. And then you slaughter the lamb. You take the blood of the lamb. You put it on your doorposts. You cook the lamb, and you eat the lamb. And you thank God, and you pray. And as you're sticking the fork into the lamb, one of the kids says, Daddy, why did we have to kill little lammy? And he says, to celebrate deliverance. Because imagine being in Egypt, and there needed to be a sacrifice, and it was either going to be the firstborn child or a lamb. And for the Israelites, it was the lamb. But for the Egyptians, their firstborn children died. Now, let me think about this. Do you think that any of the Israelites, as they're packing up their unleavened bread and their few possessions, and they're getting ready to march out, and they're going through the fields, the firstborn animal of every family of the Egyptians died as well. So they're seeing dead animals in the fields. They're hearing the wailing of the Egyptians, and they're saying, they're saying, uh, uh, boy, I'd really like to be an Egyptian today. No way. They're saying, thank you, Lord, for delivering us, for saving us, because the smell of death is fresh in the air, and the sounds of wailing is fresh in their minds. But two years later, what did they say? I wish we were back in Egypt. After Sinai, after he taught them how to be holy, we, we had meat in Egypt. We had this in Egypt, leeks and onions and, you know. And so, and so what is the lesson here? How do we celebrate the Passover as Christians? We celebrate the Passover by preaching Christ to ourselves because Christ died for your sin. And when that's fresh on your mind, you're not saying, I wish I lived like my old life. I wish I had that kind of sin in my life. You're overwhelmed with the fact that you're alive and you should be dead because we are the firstborn children of death. We are are children of wrath. We deserve to be dead because of our sin, and we know it, and yet Christ died for our sin. And so when Paul says, uh, verse 8, let us celebrate the feast, he's saying to the church, Have this fresh in your mind. Have this fresh in your mind that Christ died for you. A young Israelite leaving Egypt doesn't say at that moment, I want to be like the Egyptians. I want to be here around all this death. They say, let's get out of here. This is a place of wrath and condemnation. A young believer doesn't say, I want to be in the world. 
He says, let me get out of the world. That's a place of wrath and condemnation. But in the church, as comfort begins to settle in and complacency, and we start to look back at our old sinful life, and we start to forget the stench of our sin and the wrath and condemnation that we deserve for it, we become ungrateful for the sacrifice, for the lamb, for our Passover, Christ, who is the perfect. And the, the way we celebrate it is if they celebrated the Passover by seven days, not allowing leaven into their bread, we celebrate the crucifixion and sacrifice for our sin by the rest of our lives, not allowing sin to infiltrate our lives and our body. That's how we celebrate the Passover. Christ, the Passover lamb, which leads us really to the third implication of our text, and that is impurity and celebration is impossible. A third reason why it's so important to rid the church of impurity is because you cannot celebrate the Passover lamb. You cannot celebrate Christ while impurity is reigning throughout your church or your life. Impurity and celebration is impossible. Verse 8 says, Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Again, Exodus 13.7, Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among all your quarters, and all you and all you shall tell your son in that day, this is done because of what the Lord did when I came up out of Egypt. It shall be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth for with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. Can you imagine being a Jew and celebrating the Passover and the second day of the Passover You've got these fresh baking rolls in your oven and the neighbors are smelling them and you come out and you've got butter dripping all over them and they're real doughy and fluffy and light, just melt in your mouth. Oh man, you've got to try these rolls. They'd say, what are you doing? This is the feast of the Passover. We're unleavened bread for seven days. And that's what it's like in the church when someone brings their sin out and everybody else smells it and they said, oh, this is so good. You say, what are you doing? Christ died for your sin. Notice the middle verse 8, we abstain from the old leaven of malice and evil. Malice is an evil nature or disposition. It has the idea of intentionality there. Um, Somebody who's malicious doesn't trip somebody on accident. Evil is that wicked disposition as well. It's the manifestation of it. It was Spurgeon who said this. When young folks tell me how terribly wicked they are and therefore they're afraid they cannot be saved, I sometimes reply, yes, but you are much worse than you think you are. They look so astonished for they hope to be comforted and they are plunged into a deeper ditch. I tell them the Lord Jesus came to save the weak and the worthless. We lay the axe to the tree of self that men may fly to the tree of life. We are much worse than we think we are, but we can live a life of sincerity and truth. And this is what I want to get at at the very end of verse 8. The word sincerity is a compound word, two words coming together. It's the word in Greek for son and the word for judge. It's a son judge. What does that mean? Possibly garments is one of the things. They would take a garment. They would would hold it up to the sunlight. Does it have any stains on it? And uh, the word sincerity is actually a Latin word, sine sere, uh, meaning that uh, without wax. Sera is wax uh, because pots in those days, if they had a crack in it, sometimes in the market, they would fill it with wax and they would cover it over with dye, with broken uh, pot you know, crumbs, and then, then you wouldn't see it if you bought it unless you held it up to the light to see if it was without wax. And that became the English word sincere, without wax. How do we purify our lives? How do we purify the church? We hold up our body as a collective body of believers. We hold up our friends who claim to be believers. We hold up our own lives 
before the light of God's word and we let it shine on us to see the blemishes and then we try to work on those. We get rid of those blemishes and we commit them to God and we turn from them. And it, 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 you know, sometimes people think, well, why does this sin just keep on lingering on? Why can't I just get rid of it? Because what because we know our nature, right? If, if, if God just said, fine, boom, you're a Christian, it's all gone, then you'd fall to the next sin. You'd find something to replace it. What God wants is not to be a revolving door to remove sin. What God wants is a relationship with a redeemed people. And because we struggle, it forces us to do the journey of what really will help us overcome that sin, and that is to read his word, to love his people, to interact with his people, to confront his people, to care for his people, to serve his people, to serve him, to know him, to pray to him, to have a genuine relationship with Christ, to repent of your sin and turn and trust him. He wants a real relationship. He wants your life. He wants you to turn from your sin and trust in him as your Lord and master. And and that Uh, positionally, you are cleansed. Practically, we're to help one another grow, and we're to pray for one another, and we're to develop our relationships with Christ. And that's how we celebrate the Passover through Jesus Christ. Impurity and contamination is inevitable. Impurity in Christianity is incompatible. And impurity in celebration is impossible. Let's pray. Father God, We've talked a lot today about holy living, and it's a challenge to our lives because we are challenged by this. Help us, Father. Help us to encourage one another, to strengthen one another, to not tolerate sin in our midst, that when we are confronted of sin by others, that we would repent of it immediately, and that we would get help and strength and devote ourselves to your word and your people, that we would seek more and more understand your word because we, we know, Lord, that the more we understand about who you are and the more it's revealed about who we are, the more we love you and the less we want to be like the world. So teach us more about you. Help us to learn more about you. Help us to be disciplined enough to seek after you. Only by your grace can we do that. We pray that you would keep us, Lord, mindful of that and that ultimately your name will be exalted. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.